Coming up on this week's show, we talk to Michael Scott Garvin about his debut novel, A Faithful Son. Plus, we get ready for the ABC miniseries, When We Rise. Welcome to the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for readers and writers of gay romance fiction. If you can read it, write it, watch it, or listen to it, these two guys are going to talk about it. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Adams and Will Knauss. Welcome to episode 73 of Jeff and Will's Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Jeff from jeffadamswrites.com. And I'm Will from willknauss.com. This week's episode is sponsored in part by listeners just like you. We'll have more information on how you can help support this show in just a few moments. Welcome back, sir. Thank you. Another week, another show. Woohoo! <laughs> well, you're, you're well, excited. You're ready yeah, to go. It occurred to me as I was doing the intro. I almost never change the cadence of, I'm Jeff from JeffHadamDrives.com, and yet you seem to put different spins on yours all the time. I feel like I'm being boring. <laughs> I need to work on that, podcast listeners. <laughs> it's my theatrical training. I like to keep it fresh. <laughs> I like it. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you appreciate it. Um... <laughs> How are you today, given that I've just like made you crack up? <sighs> I'm fine. Neither here nor there, I guess. I don't. I don't know. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Fair, fair to Midland. Okay, I'll accept <laughs> that. I'll just move on with writing updates. Uh, yes, you went to the great state of Texas. Woohoo! This past week. Yeah, I did travel for work, and instead of going to L.A., I went to Texas instead because mm-hmm. you know why not? Yeah, why not? Uh, it was fun. I got to see a couple of old friends. Down there, David Robin. Hi, David Robin, because I know mm. you guys listen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a good time. And, you know, it was nice to get into some sun, honestly, because it was <sighs> sunny and somewhat spring-like while I was there, which was nice. Yeah. Um, still a busy writing week, though. I Before I left, I got the revisions done on Head Games, which is the story that's going to go into the Changing on the Fly 2 anthology later this year. Got those over to the editor so that they can get shaped up a little bit more. Awesome. Uh, also plotted out the romance side of what will become Pride League One. Don't think I've talked about that series too much here yet. Uh, that's a new series that's essentially going to spin off of the Hattrick universe. Going to debut uh, in the spring, if all goes well, and become something that rolls out over the next... Couple months. Few months, yeah. hopefully longer. I have eight, eight, like eight books etched on the chalkboard behind the door, so we'll see if all those actually get written or not. And I actually wrote the first 1,600 words on Pride League One while I was gone to introduce the new character. Um, got a new batch of edits for Winger One yesterday also, so I've started to parse through those. They're, they're a little mind-blowing, um, but we'll work through those as needed. Good. Yeah. Some sad news this week. Sad. Yeah. Uh, Prison Book Alliance announced this week that they were going to be closing shop at the end of March. Uh, As podcast listeners know, uh, Brandilyn, who runs Prison Book Alliance, has been a contributor to the show for quite some time now. Uh, We wish her all the best. We know she's leaving because she wants to pursue some other interest in supporting of the genre. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that said, it's always sad uh, when a good review blog does close its doors. Uh, so we wish her all the best. We hope she will continue to contribute with us. The door is certainly open if you want to, Brandilyn. So come on back. Um, but yeah, we wish her the best and a uh, bit of fond farewell to the side at the end of March. 
Uh, moving on to other fancy news, we have a giveaway this week. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing so much. You're making me do all this talking over here. <laughs> you're just standing over there looking pretty. Well, you're you're the one who had contacted this particular author, an author who is a we count as a friend of the show. Yes, uh, had a recent new release. Yes, uh, we met Jordan Nasser because he reached out to us. Uh, Back in the early days of the podcast, he was actually on the on episode sixteen talking to us about his Home as a Fire series, uh, which we were both huge fans of. Yes, liked both of those books, and his third book in the series, The Fire Inside, just came out uh, back a few days ago. We're super excited to read this book. It's it's in our Kindle right now, in fact, waiting for us to look at. But to celebrate the release, Jordan is offering a prize to the podcast listeners. That's you guys right there. Uh, two winners will each receive, via an Amazon gift, the first two books in the series, which is Home is a Fire and The Fire Went Wild. There's a rafflecopter on the show notes page for episode 73. Make sure to have your entries in quick. This contest will expire on Sunday, March 5th. So there you go. And of course, if you missed Jordan's interview where he does talk about the series, you can drop on back to episode 16. Yeah, really looking forward to this new installment in the series. Yeah, me too. Uh, next, we want to say a very big thank you to our newest patron, Olivia. Um, thank you, Olivia. We certainly appreciate the patronage. Now, you can help support the Big Gay Fiction Podcast with a monthly pledge through Patreon. I have trouble saying that every single week. Pledge through Patreon. Blah, blah, blah. It's hard to say. It's the alliteration, (laughs) I tell you. Hard. Okay. For less than the price of a coffee a month, your pledge helps pay the costs of producing and distributing the podcast. And for fans who pledge at the silver and gold levels, you'll have the exclusive opportunity to ask questions of our upcoming guests. And you can get details on becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash podcast. All of our supporters will be listed on our very special patrons page at biggayfictionpodcast.com. Yes. Home home of Jeff's beautifully crafted show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Want to hang out with us between shows? Check us out on Facebook. You never know what we might post. News about book sales, bonus video content, and maybe even a live broadcast or two. Like us today at facebook.com slash biggayfictionpodcast and see what we get up to next. So coming up this very Monday, which is February 27th, uh, ABC is premiering the When We Rise miniseries. Uh, airs at 9 o'clock Eastern Time tonight. And we'll continue Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, March 1 through 3, each night at 9 p.m. I'm super excited for this. Um, there's a lot of gay history that I am woefully unaware of. Um, I think this is going to be a great opportunity to catch up on some of that, see some great performances, and uh, really see how Dustin Lance Black weaves all this stuff together. He is the writer and executive producer of the miniseries, and of course he won an Oscar for his screenplay uh, for Milk uh, back a few years ago. Uh, There is a book also um, that is... The basis for some of this, uh, called When We Rise, it's by Cleve Jones. Uh, he uh, actually got into the gay liberation movement in 1972 and did a lot of stuff as he was mentored by Harvey Milk. He founded the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt and actually led the National March for Equality in 2009. So that's one of the centerpieces of the four 
stories that make up this show. Um, there's also Ken Jones, who's an African-American Vietnam vet who joined the liberation movement in San Francisco, only to confront the racism that can exist in the gay men's community at the time. And I think still does to, to some degree today even. Uh, he worked to organize services for homeless youth. He worked to diversify the gay movement and uh, led efforts to confront uh, the devastation of the AIDS epidemic. Uh, looking at a more rural... Uh, uh, perspective. Thank you. You're welcome. I lost my words there for a minute. <laughs> From a rural perspective, there's Roma Guy, who was a lesbian uh, and a longtime social justice leader who co-founded the San Francisco Women's Building. Uh, and then as a public health commissioner, worked... Uh, from others, mm, she worked with others to bring healthcare access to all of San Francisco, all San Franciscans. Uh, but she came out of rural Maine, which is where the rural connection comes from. There, because uh, each of these stories also features a lot of these uh, individuals' uh, childhood and youth uh, timeframes. And then there's Diane, who's a lesbian mother and grandmother of three, who joined the women's movement in 1970 in the 1970s in San Francisco. Uh, worked with Roma to co-found the Women's Building and worked as an HIV-AIDS nurse and a social justice activist at San Francisco General Hospital for 33 years. I think, uh, obviously, San Francisco is going to be the setting for the bulk of this show that actually spans 1972 to 2013. Um, I'd really like to give kudos to ABC, too, for putting this out there, uh, especially in the political climate we're in these days. Uh... Also our cast, too. Guy Pierce, Mary Louise Parker, Rachel Griffiths, Whoopi Goldberg, Arliss Howard, T.R. Knight, Rosie O'Donnell, Kevin McHale, Dennis O'Hare, blah, blah, blah. Lots of people <laughs> coming in this show. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how it all sort of plays out. I think, is our plan to kind of watch it all at once, record it, and then kind of maybe have a marathon across eight hours? Oh, I have no idea. I think that'd be kind of nice to watch it in a marathon if we could sit that long. Uh, Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. But I think this is going to be good. We encourage everybody to give it a look and uh, see what you think and have a have a good history lesson, uh, hopefully crafted well. The early reviews I've read seem to say it's, it's looking good. Um, yes. Uh, the early reviews have been very, very positive. Uh, I think now more than ever, these stories uh, have to be told. So mm -hmm. I'm very looking forward to it. Speaking of stories and well-told stories... You wanted to give a shout out to uh, one of our favorite TV shows. Yes. Uh, we've raved a couple times on this show about This Is Us uh, on NBC. And I thought the February 21st episode, which was titled Memphis, uh, really took the show to a brand new level of quality. It was no spoilers uh, to be given there, but if you've been watching, you know that uh, Randall went with his father to Memphis, hence the title of the episode. And it was... A tremendous father and son moment, a tremendous moment looking at families, and really the, that journey was just amazing, and it was a beautiful hour of television. And that's all I'll say about it, because you just need to go watch it. Uh, if you if you are watching the show, pick that episode up as soon as you can. If you're not watching it, go to NBC.com or the NBC app and watch this show, because it's really extraordinary. Mm -hmm. uh, more stories. Wonderful storytelling news. Uh, several years ago, uh, someone had the genius idea of taking Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City and musicalizing them. Uh, that particular show, uh, Tales of the City the Musical, uh, made its debut several years ago in San Francisco. 
uh, and it is now getting a special one night only concert performance in New York City. Yes, it is. March 27th, uh, members, many members of the original cast and Armistead Maupound himself will be presenting the musical at the Music Box Theater as a benefit for the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, which is where the musical was first presented in 2009, as well as the Trevor Project, uh, which of course provides services uh, for suicide prevention for LGBTQ youth. Uh, This looks tremendous. It's one of those moments I so wish we still lived in New York because we would completely go to this performance. Uh, Tickets and details are at the O'Neill.org, which you can also click on in the show notes. Uh, If you're in the area and have always wondered what this would be like to see as a musical, go see it. Uh, It has music from the Scissor Sisters, Jake Shears and John Garden, as well as a book by Jeff Witte, who uh, wrote uh, Avenue Q, among other things. So go check that out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Recently, we had the pleasure of talking to Michael Scott Garvin. Uh, and he wrote one of your favorite books from last year. Yes, he did. A Faithful Son uh, ended up on one of uh, my best of 2016 lists. Uh, I still have to. Th- I still thank Lisa from the Novel Approach every time for forcing me to move this book up my TBR list because it was such a tremendous read. Really enjoyed sitting down with Michael, finding out how he brought this story to life and how he chose such a complex story for his debut effort. So, shall we listen to that? Yes. I'm excited to have Michael Scott Garvin on the podcast. Scott is an award-winning custom home builder and interior designer. His design firm, Michael Scott Garvin Studio, has designed and built custom homes throughout the Southwest. His debut novel, A Faithful Son, was published in May 2016. Welcome, Scott. Hello, Jeff. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, thank you for such a wonderful book. Um, As you know... Uh, from the review on the podcast, I just devoured that book and loved it. Um, well, thank you. We're kind of living a dream around here. My sister's my right hand, and uh, we I wasn't even going to publish the novel. And so now that it's not only published, but it's been received so well, we're kind of godsmacked. We're, we're, we're kind of walking on clouds right now. As well you should be. For those who don't know or, or miss the my review, and occasionally my reviews are a little rambling and don't capture things quite right, tell us what tell us about a faithful son. Well, I know what I hope it's about. I hope it's about quiet people living dignified lives. I know that we we're in a culture that we kind of elevate reality stars and we elevate um, sports celebrities, but I wanted to have a story about a family that's that's handling life's losses. I think that life is very democratic and we're all dealt uh, successes and losses. And I I think that the Zach Nance family was just, uh, uh, it's an example of people living quiet, dignified lives and and battling through some of the obstacles that life throws you. I I think that is a good good description of it. Uh, And you mentioned the dignity and there is a dignity through that runs through the whole thing. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I didn't want any villains or uh, there was no sinners, no saints. It was uh, in my everyday life. You certainly see it on television, but in my everyday life, I didn't really run into deliberate cruelty or those kinds of villains that you see on television. Uh, and, and in fact, these folks, I had hoped just 
came off as individuals that are really striving to be good, decent people. One happens to be gay. One happens to struggle with addiction. Uh, they all deal with a tragedy. And the way that they go about healing themselves and that human condition was something I was very interested in. I didn't want uh, uh, an espionage book or I didn't want uh, a murder mystery. I, I wanted, in fact, you used the word in your review, and it's odd. You're the first person that used the word uh, sweeping. I wanted to tell a sweeping story, and I would try to describe that to my uh my, my sister who sits right across from me at this desk and when she was trying to understand what I was trying to accomplish and I said I wanted a larger story. I wanted to keep pushing the parameters of not just Zach, but I wanted to know more about his mother. I wanted to know more about his sisters, the community which she was raised. Uh, and I wanted to round off all the characters, the good, the bad, the ugly, the, the aesthetically pleasing, all of it. I wanted to... Uh, wanted to encompass it all in the book, which is no small task for a writer who is uh, an amateur at best. And uh, so I'm hoping that I accomplished most of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What was the inspiration for the novel? Where did, that, where did this pop out? Is it being somebody's first book? Well, in truth, I had started uh, novels in my 20s and uh, became distracted by life. And then I tried to get in my 30s and became distracted by business, my, my primary work, which is building homes. Uh, in my 40s, at, at my age now, I started in my late 40s, and I, and I have to say that it was the first time that I wrote about people that I knew. It's certainly not my life story, but I remember the, the gaggle of, of church women with big bouffants that would kind of run the community. Uh, they were kind and they were sweet and they were pushy and they were bossy, uh, but they were always well-intentioned. So I knew those women. Uh, Zach certainly is not my life story, but I, I, was, I knew the conflict, how conflicted I was being a gay man and coming out in a community that was loving, but certainly over, the, over time, there's no doubt about it that you're not invited to a lot of church socials if you're gay. And uh, so I felt that. Um, unlike Zach, I have a fantastic family, did not struggle with addictions. Uh, my parents were nothing but kind when I came out. Uh, so those parts of Zach are not me. But, um, yeah, I, I would say that I was inspired by that. And finally, in my late 40s, I started writing about people that I knew versus people that I wanted to know. I started writing about places that I had been versus places that I that I wanted to go. And I think that made all the difference. Uh, I wrote the prologue in the first chapter, and then I skipped to the last chapter. And then after that, as we were discussing before the interview, all my neurotic tendencies came in after that. And I was almost paralyzed by the process when I realized that I had the prologue in the first chapter and then uh, the final chapter, and, and then I had to dig deep to finish finish the story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You mentioned that you know, Zach has some of your you know, life story in him. Are there other characters that have bits of you in them? I, well, I think, and by the way, congratulations on... Um, Love's Help Me Out, I just ordered it, your, your new novel. Oh, Love's Opening Night. 
Love's Opening Night. Uh, congratulations. I'm sure you know anytime you sit down to write a novel that I think there's parts of us, um, I think there's parts of us, all the characters, the good and the bad. Uh, and so certainly I see myself in the older sisters. Her name's Laura in the book. And I, she was such a zealot about, about her faith and absolutes uh, in her life. And uh, so there's parts of me that I've had to tone that down as I've gotten older that while I'm not a, a religious person any longer, uh, I certainly find that sometimes I have absolutes and, it's, and I look at things through a black and white lens when in fact we all know the world as different hues of gray mm -hmm. and not, uh, not absolutes anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What was your research like? for the book because this spans decades and places because you hop from Durango to LA for a, a, LA, a part yeah. of the book. Well, uh, again, I, Zach's a little bit older than I am. And so the research, the research that I had to do was I followed his path, but only 10 years later. So I did go to LA and West Hollywood. I didn't live there. Um, but that was kind of, my group of friends playground when uh, when I finally came out the West Hollywood district so I knew that area well of course my family have has investments in Durango so I knew Durango well the research that I had to do and it was actually kind of fun it's one of the funnest parts of the book is to not to not date when a cell phone occurs or what West Hollywood the nightclubs in West Hollywood uh, during the, they had all by the wayside by the time I discovered West Hollywood with all my friends. So that kind of research, understanding when a microwave might be created or a, a, a cell phone or a pager, uh, restaurants in Durango, that's the kind of research that I had to do. The, the emotional side of it, as you know as well as I do, you just have to you have to speak your piece, and and that research was already in my head because I lived kind of that experience mm -hmm. emotionally. Yeah, it was it was interesting to me how few actual date markers you put in the book. Yeah, because there were times that I would go as I, especially as I was trying to you know concoct a review. It's like how many years passed? I think it's thirty. It's thirty. <laughs> yeah, you were right. You were right. It, it was thirty. Um, and, and I like the idea of this small town being insulated from, let's say, the turbulence of the late 60s and the early 70s. So to come in and, and mirror what was on the front page of the New York Times, I'm sorry, or the L.A. Times, uh, when, when at the same period in Durango, there's, you know, there's a bake sale going on. That's the headline of, of the newspaper in Durango. So I love to mirror those those images of time and what was important and the priorities of a small town life versus his new life in, in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it sounds like the research was, I'll, I'll go with easy and perhaps that in quotes, uh, since you weren't doing anything too historic, but were there any right. particular surprises in what you did come up with that you didn't expect to find? Well, I don't know if this answers the question completely, but I, I actually was, I remember the moment as I was doing the research and I realized, and you had even mentioned this earlier in one of your emails to me, 
I had realized that it was a strange dichotomy that the story that I was telling of a man coming out in, let's say, the 60s, 70s, and even early 80s, is so vastly different than young men now. And so for me to write the novel set in a time period that was, uh, you know, let's say 30, 40 years ago, uh, the relatability of a young gay literary reader, it must be almost like a different planet. Uh, the kinds of discussions and concerns that Zach Nance had as a young boy versus maybe the experience of a, of a gay man or a gay teen now. Uh, I know that some of the novels you write are about hockey and you know gay men on a hockey team. Uh, that's not part of Zach Nance's life. He couldn't even comprehend that. So I would say the more I delved into the research of the time period and the nightclubs and the, oh, the, the secret, dark, shadowy places that gay men had to go to, uh, whereas now I think it's, it's, so, it's so liberated that people can, um, can wear a T-shirt you know, with, with the rainbow flag and it says everything you need to say. Yeah, I I think that's mostly true. I think there's still pockets probably around small towns, extremely religious towns where this where Zach's story could still ring very very true even in this day. We we get letters almost daily uh, recanting well saying exactly what you just now said. We get letters almost every other day from from individuals saying that, which both breaks my heart and. Uh, and reminds me that in some areas, Zach's story is still true and relevant. Mm -hmm. And that actually cues up the next question I had pretty well. Um, you know, you've the books received awards and very strong reviews, but were you worried how the book, which is you know set in the past, because I think it ends somewhere in the eighties, yes, sir, would be received by the modern day audience? Um, even taking into account that there are still some pockets in the country where Zach's story would in fact ring true. Well, I, I smile as you ask that question because I can tell you that there was not, I, I guess I should say, I am my harshest critic. There's no one that's going to critique me harder than I'm going to do it at night by myself. I will beat myself up until I'm black and blue. But that being said, there was not one moment during the three years of writing the novel that I even considered publishing it. So the question for me, I was never even confronted with that. And, and we were chatting offline about this idea of the sophomore, the sophomore novel, the next novel that comes. Now I'm asking those questions and I'm mad at myself for asking them because they, all of a sudden the process doesn't feel as authentic as, my, as writing A Faithful Son. So I can tell you that at no point did I ever think of genres or readers or awards or acknowledgments, accolades? I, again, that was the farthest thing from my mind. And so to find ourselves here chatting, you and I chatting, is, it's almost surreal to me because it was such a personal, private, insular moment, writing A Faithful Son. And then to now release it and have Jeff and Will and Lisa and everyone reading it, it's, it's almost like it's an out-of-body kind of experience that I, 
the novel has its own life. I've said that before. It's its own life, very detached from me. Uh, and I think it's all because I held it so close to my chest for so long. And now to see it being read by people, the sales have been brisk. It surprised us. We never thought we would sell books. And now all of a sudden I'm realizing, you know, these, these strangers are, are consuming my book. And I hope, I hope that they're enjoying it. I hope they're enjoying it. What was the turning point in having a book that you were writing for yourself and deciding to put it out in the world? Uh, that's a great question. I've never been asked it before. And I can tell you that I don't know if you've ever read Confederacy of Dunces. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. Um, it won the Pulitzer. And the, the writer, John Kennedy Toole, had actually passed away. Uh, this is sad to report, but it was actually suicide. And his mother, while cleaning out the, his, his house or his room, found the novel in a shoebox or somewhere in his closet. Some, and again, it had never been released to an editor or to a publisher. And so it was uh, published after his passing. I certainly have no intention of meeting his demise, but I, I just imagined I just imagined that the novel would be something that my nieces and nephews, I love my family to pieces, and I just assumed uh, that it would be found by them or that I would share it with them in a manuscript form and then it would I could check that off my bucket list uh, at some point and again keep in mind that I'm my own worst critic and so when I finally put it out in front of a Facebook friend who I knew was in the publishing industry uh, her name's Tara uh, she wrote me back as well as one other friend did because I only shared it with my my sister who works again right across from me here. Uh, I'd only shared it with her. And when my friend from Facebook wrote back and said, you know, this is not a rough draft. Uh, they said, she said, this is not a rough draft. And I grinned from ear to ear because I realized all of that writing and I mean night and day. I, I have my primary job, which again is design and home construction. But until I left in the morning, uh, and, and then as soon as I arrived back home, I was writing pretty much every day for a few years. And, uh, and so when she said to me, this is not a rough draft, you have something here, I just felt all the blood rush from my head. It's like, okay, now I'll I may put it out there. So sorry for the long answer yeah. to your question, but that's that was the story of it being published. So there's some very strong passages in the book that I found myself highlighting as I went, and I don't all I don't often highlight things as I read on the Kindle, even though they make it really easy to do that. Yeah. So there's a, a couple things that Zach's mom says. Uh, one being deliberate cruelty is the wicked work of the weak. It takes yeah. strength to be kind. Yeah. And then also, honesty is a selfish thing, Zach. Nothing good ever comes from it. Uh, two things. One, uh, the last one was actually from Laura. When oh, Laura sorry. Was, when Laura was scared of um, what Zach was going to say, and you could see how Laura was falling into a hole. And I think that any, and I've said this before, but I think any kind of zealot has to be careful, whether it's, 
politically to the right or politically to the left or religious or anti-religion, anyone that believes in absolutes, which Laura did, can talk themselves into almost anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Laura was, I think, worried about her, her mother's health. And I think she was worried about Zach coming out with this pronouncement. Mm -hmm. And so I think that she had talked herself into believing, because I think she's a good woman, I think she talked herself into believing that um, that honesty and being true to who you are is a dangerous thing if it doesn't fit the parameters of what, he, what she finds to be holy or righteous. And I think that it was that was a stab to Zach because of the fact that he was finally working up the nerve to do it. He was living a life, an open life in, in, in Los Angeles. And here he has someone who is basically saying, you know, you need to shut this down. Uh, remember who you are. Uh, and then the first quote was actually, I, I can't even take credit for it. It's not an exact quote, but Leo Biscaglia, uh, a writer and a, and a life coach, he's passed away. But for years, he he had said, and I believe it may have come from the Dalai Lama or it may have come from Sister Teresa, but someone else had said, certainly I was not the first, to suggest that we sometimes think of cruelty as something that strong people can do. But in fact, kindness is something that should be expected by the strong. It, uh, being kind and being compassionate is something that takes a lot of strength in this world. Um, and, and in fact, it, it's, it's not a weak person that decides to be kind. So that's where those two quotes came from. One, one was more about, I love the line of honesty is a selfish thing because you all of a sudden really saw what, what battles Lara was having internally. Uh, and then, of course, uh, that this idea that, that compassion can only be, is a trait of, of, of strength. I, I've always thought that was sweet. But again, I think that's through either the Dalai Lama or Sister Teresa. And then there's also a line that from Zach's own narration, true, that I thought was possibly the most beautiful line, but also the most crushing in the book. When he when he says that, but Laura and I knew that a piece of the sky had broken loose. Yeah, well, without without spoiling it, I think we all know those moments. I think we go through, I think we go through days. And I think I can say this kind of like a turning of a page with book days just go by us and they they pass. They're fleeting, uh, and then you have moments that you get that phone call or you get the bad diagnosis, or you get some dire news, and you realize that a piece of your blue sky is falling. And I think with the news that he was given, he understood in that split second. In the same way, by the way, when he met Doug, he, he says, you know, some, some days count, you know, some days matter. I think that he understood that that was an important day. And I think the day he got the news, the, the dire news, uh, he makes the comment, you know, we understood a piece of the sky was, was falling on us. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's the direction we were going. 
and, and I think it worked so well in, in my view. Um, Thank you. I appreciate these, it. These, these kinds of passages are kind of the impressions that kind of stuck with me after the book. I'm so happy. I'm glad to hear that. And of course, as an author, you know, when we put our work out into the world, it's really no longer ours and all the readers out there bring their own yes, sir. bits and pieces to it. But focusing solely on you as the author and ignoring all that from a, what is it that you hope that readers do take away from this? If you can frame that without spoiling the story at the same time. Well, do you know um, Effie Feely? Mm -mm. He's a writer. Uh, he's written um, uh, the, ob the Object in the Mirror. I I'll think of some other, uh, other novels. He had written a review on Amazon. I've never met him. Uh, but he, he had a beautiful quote that I'm going to I'm going to paraphrase. But basically that, that love is love is love. And that at the end of the day, whether it's the love of a parent, the love of a child, the love of a husband, the love of a significant other, love is love. And it sounds, it sounds cliche, but I, I was hoping that the novel, the novel was lyrical in the way it was written. I wanted something that, that rang true. And, and so I tried to, I wanted it to be a stark story, but told very lyrically and everyday life can be beautiful. And there's something about the acknowledgement that yes, the Nance family had some struggles and yes, at, an es at its essence, maybe it's a sad story, but there is a lot of beauty in life if you're willing to open your eyes and look at it. And I think that Zach battled that constantly. Uh, but every time he would turn inward and find the beauty of any obstacle, that was my belief. Uh, and that's what I hope people walk away that again, people can have dignified, quiet lives. You don't have to be on television. You don't have to be uh, famous or infamous. You can live a dignified, quiet life, even as a gay man. And uh, and enjoy your spouse and your family and your your children and your puppies and all that kind of stuff. So that's what I hope people take away from the novel. I like that. So we've we've kind of danced around this question a little bit uh, in our conversation so far. But of course, you are a home builder and interior designer, and now you're a novelist as well. Um, had stories always been bubbling in you? You mentioned, you know, writing a little bit in your 20s and 30s and not really having had the time. You know, uh, what turned that dial for you to be like, I am going to do this? Well, I, I think that I, I feel to a certain degree time is running out. It's a bucket list item. And I really wanted to, to, to write a novel. Again, it was not for publication. I... I didn't think that I would ever adapt to what you and I are doing right now. So in other words, I'd write a novel, then I would come and talk to Jeff and Will <laughs> about this. So that wasn't part of my framed picture. So publishing a novel seemed very secondary to me. It was writing the novel that seemed important. Um, so I, I would say that I'm going to continue to write. I've, ha I've been blessed to have a charmed life. I've got a great great primary job, great clients, 
but now I've got to make room for the second passion <laughs> and uh, I'll be a home builder till the day I die, but I, I need to make room for what's happening now. And that is, I wake up in the morning I want to write and I go to bed wanting to write. Uh, I don't know how, like yourself, people are prolific. I, I, I'm not wired that way. I'm completely neurotic and I, I sweat over sentences. And uh, while I'm so envious of people that can continue to write and we chat it offline, you certainly don't do it for the money. You do it for the love of it. And that's where I'm at now. I've got to kind of work through this, this maze of figuring out how to live my primary life and now with this new obsession of, of writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you've got your next book, Aunt, Aunt Suki and Me. <laughs> which either makes me think of the Gilmore Girls or True Blood, just because of Sookie. <laughs> <laughs> I've um, got to tell you, I haven't seen either one of them. I'm not a television person. I, and by the way, in your review, you had mentioned This Is Us. And I've got to say, I've never, that you thought it was kind of, the episodes were similar to that. I've never seen that that show either yet. But uh, Aunt Sookie and me is, I, I smile because, it's going to be one more example of how I don't respect my readers. It's such a, it's such a, it's such a, a vast departure from the faithful son. It's still based in small town America. This happens to be Savannah in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, but it is a rollicking romp of a ride uh, with a bunch of um, uh, high society Savannah ladies and a precocious nine-year-old, a uh, transvestite, uh, a dead body buried underneath the garden bed, uh, an ornery goat. I mean, this is a strange, strange, wild, fun novel. And uh, I mentioned to you again offline that, that I had hoped, unlike Faithful Son, which was kind of draining on me for those years, that, that I would answer every problem that these children and ladies encounter in Aunt Sookie and me, every time they encountered a problem, I thought I would answer it with satire. Zach Nance and his family would dig deep when they were confronted with issues. And I think I'm going to be confronting the same issues with Aunt Sookie and me, but I promise you the irreverent behavior of these people will take uh, we'll take people on a journey that I haven't read since um, Still Life with Woodpecker by Tom Robbins, if you haven't read that crazy novel. Um, but so I'm excited. I'm a little bit delayed on it. I'm still expecting it out in the next, um, I'm guessing, three to four months. Okay. So sometime, you know, sounds like second quarter of the year. Yeah. Can you believe I'm, I'm – how foolish is this? I just, I just finished a novel, and now within 11 months, I'm trying to put out another one. It's ridiculous on my part, but that gives you just a little window into how neurotic I can be when I set my mind to something. No, I think that's good. You you want to do the follow-ups while people still have the first one kind of fresh in their heads. I hope so. Uh, any idea what comes after Aunt Suki comes out? Do you have plans for more? Uh, well, I've said it before to you. I would, I would love to start living life instead of writing about it because I really have – put a lot of effort these last 48 these last 48 months these last four or five years a lot of effort behind this and I 
I would like to take a little bit of a break, but what's that saying? If you want to make, if you want to make uh, God laugh, tell him what your plans are. And so for me to suggest that I'm going to take a break, I haven't done it my entire life. I'm kind of a workaholic, so I don't think that I'll turn around and somehow start laying out on the beach and uh, vacationing uh, for months at a time. So it'll be more of the same. I'll continue to write, and I will uh, continue to hopefully build beautiful homes. Sounds good. What's on top of your reading list these days? Uh, I am uh, just starting Ruby by Cynthia Bond. If you haven't read it, uh, you talk about it. A powerhouse of a novel. Uh, just starting it, and uh, I'm kind of a, a lover of the classics, so I always keep Grapes of Wrath by Steinbeck around. Truman Capote's collection, a collection of stories called Music for Chameleons is one that I see sitting on my desk right now. The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt, I'm wanting to read that as well. Uh, the When writing A Faithful Son, I really didn't know what genre, and I've, I've spoke about this before, that I didn't know what genre the novel would actually find its home in, and because I'm actually not a huge reader of gay fiction. Uh, that's going to be changing, but I, I've never been. Uh, and so now my bookcase, you'll start seeing that there's, what do I have back here? Dream Boy and um, Closet Case and Men on Men Short Story Gay Fictions, The Dreyfus Affair. I all of a sudden went out and bought a lot of uh, gay novels and um, been reading, uh, planning on reading those. Nice. So uh, what's the best way for people to keep up with you online so they know all the news on when the new books come out? Well, I'm a dinosaur when it comes to technology, and uh, so I everyone run everyone in the office runs for cover when I have to get a a new phone and learn the the uh, delicacies of a new phone. Uh, so my Twitter accounts and my Michael Scott Garvin books, and of course I think Facebook, uh, Michael Scott Garvin, author, faithful son, are the most interactive that I'm on. And my, my sister, who again works with me here, she handles that for me so she knows I don't blow my top uh, trying to finagle this. Uh, the fact that we're on Skype this morning is, I think, a miracle sent from heaven. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm so glad you, you, you took your initial Skype outing uh, with me. It was, a good, it was great fun. Uh, thank, thank you so much for being yeah. with us, Scott. Uh, best of success on Aunt Suki and me. I'm looking forward to reading that. Thank you so much for the invitation and send my best to Will. Can a backstage flirtation lead to real-life romance? That's the question in Love's Opening Night, the gay romance novella by Jeff Adams. Jeremy Steele is a veteran Broadway performer. For his latest role, he's dancing alongside a man he's fantasized about for years, TV star Ty Beaumont. Jeremy knows better than to get involved with a castmate, but when Ty has trouble learning the complicated choreography, Jeremy offers to lend a hand. When a rehearsal kiss turns into something more, Jeremy can't help but wonder what a celebrity like Ty could ever see in a Broadway chorus boy like him. Will a relationship with his crush make it past previews, or can it become a long-running hit? Love's Opening Night by Jeff Adams is available at dreamspinnerpress.com Amazon.com and other ebook retailers. Pick up yours now. So I think that'll do it for this week's show. 
I uh, want to remind you of the raffle copter that is sitting on the show notes for episode 73 that will give you the opportunity to win uh, those two books from Jordan Nasser. Don't miss out on that because that will close out on Sunday, March 5th. Yes. What do we have coming up next week? Well, next week in episode 74, we have author Haley Walsh, Walsh and um, Joel Leslie. He is the voice actor who reads uh, and does her audiobooks. Yes, for the Scholar Fox Mysteries. Yeah, so we have a really terrific interview with the two of them coming up next week. You don't want to miss it. Until then, keep reading, everyone, and we'll see you next time. For detailed show notes and the complete episode backlist, go to BigGayFictionPodcast.com. New episodes are available every Monday on all major podcast distributors and YouTube. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 